Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. Today's guest is Elizabeth Samet, professor of English at the United States Military Academy at West Point and the editor of an anthology titled Leadership, Essential Writings by Our Greatest Thinkers. I picked up this book by chance at an airport bookstore in 2015, and it changed my life. The book is a collection of excerpts from some of the greatest writers, thinkers, philosophers, and leaders going back thousands of years. In this collection, you'll find everything from Homer, Thucydides, Plutarch, Montaigne, Machiavelli, Shakespeare, and in more modern times, Churchill, Lincoln, Grant, Gandhi, Mandela, Martin Luther King Jr., just to name a few. Professor Samet has carefully selected writings. Sometimes it's a letter, sometimes it's a speech or poem, and other times it's an excerpt from a longer work. And each selection teaches the reader a specific lesson about leadership and life in general. She draws on these writings to teach the cadets at West Point how to be leaders in the grand sense, thoughtful, ethical, strategic, principled, and purposeful. On the show today, she's going to share a few of these stories and the corresponding lessons that will help us become better leaders and hopefully live more meaningful, purposeful lives. Professor Samet did ask me to read this disclaimer. The views of Elizabeth Samet expressed do not reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. With that, my friends, I bring you Elizabeth Samet. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real-Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well-lived. Elizabeth, welcome to The Good Life Podcast. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be with you, Sean. Can you talk a little bit about the idea behind this book and you know where it came from and what you were trying to achieve? Sure. So my approach, obviously, as you well know, in the academy, leadership studies is really dominated by social scientists. But I am an English professor who teaches at a military academy, and so I have a, a slightly different perspective. So that the idea that was that the book would complement those works done by social scientists and draw upon my strengths and my interests and what I teach, uh, which of course is literature. Uh, I'm also interested in literary history and my texts do range. So the idea was to use my discipline of literature as a foundation and also to include many of those texts that aren't necessarily immediately connected to leadership studies. What's the reaction you've gotten from students as far as using texts to teach leadership? I know that's a little controversial in some sectors as far as can you teach leadership or can you learn about leadership by reading or especially reading something that was written 2,500 or 3,000 years ago? Right. Well, the philosophy of the institution where I teach is, of course, that leaders can be developed. The whole process contributes to leader development. Uh, My own personal philosophy harmonizes with that. Um, But I also think that the texts from which one can learn most about leadership, as I've suggested, have no overt connection to leadership. The other thing I think is that I don't teach these texts as leader development texts. I teach them because I think they're interesting texts. And so the leader development that happens is, uh, in a sense, uh, implied rather than explicit. It's not necessarily the end of the goal of these particular readings, but that in figuring out how people deal with various situations in these texts, how people deal with emergencies and crises, how people learn from their mistakes is something that I think incubates within a person, within a reader, and then may not, the influence may not show for years and years. But um, I've learned from teaching English for a long time now that it's often a, a profession of delayed gratification. You never know, maybe until 10 years down the road, what someone has has absorbed from his or her reading. Wow, that's so true. Just in the few years that I've had this book with me, I've taken it with me on many trips, read it on planes in airports or in hotels, and I'll read a story and it just might have to sink in. I might not figure out right away, how am I going to apply that or how is that going to show up in my life? And then inevitably, six months later, a year later, something will happen and it will trigger a memory of, oh, it was 
reminds me of that Aesop fable or one of the uh, essays from Montaigne that I read. The structure of the book I found extremely helpful because when I consider sitting down to read a complete work by Plutarch or let's just take War and Peace by Tolstoy, for example, my first thought is, oh boy, here's this long work. I'm going to get lost in it. I'm going to be confused. I might invest hours in this. And what am I going to gain? But in this anthology, you give the reader a bite-sized excerpt with a tangible lesson, and it is presented to us in this beautiful story, and it becomes an entree into the world of the writer, and I, I never got bogged down. And the way you structure and order the selections, there's a natural flow. It's not just random selections. You're, you're actually walking the reader through a personal learning journey. So can you talk about that? Sure. I had in mind the table of contents, which is, there's a table of contents and then an alternate table of contents to, to organize it by sort of the argument of the book, but then also by fields of interest. So people who work in different kinds of industries or uh, businesses or fields can draw something from the various chapters. I had in mind here trying to think about a book that might be suited to any stage of a career. So the undergraduate thinking about what kind of leader he or she wants to be to the CEO who, who thinks perhaps that she's already figured it out, but maybe at a crossroads or may have to learn a new way of doing business. And so I tried to organize it that way. And also, I'm glad to hear that you've it in the way you have, because my hope was also that one could pick it up and put it down, could read a selection and then take some time and, and think about it, digest it, and then come back to it. The sort of basic outline of the book, I begin with a section called Studying the System, because I thought that one of the first mistakes that a leader can make, indeed, one of the first mistakes that I found a teacher can make, is assuming you know the community with which you're working before you start. And that's often not true. And it requires a certain degree of patience to sort of learn the system, learn the community, learn the business culture, whatever it may be, before attempting to take it in a new direction get the most out of that community. So I, I guess that first section counsels a kind of patience. Maybe I'll stop you there, these first four, then go to the, the next part of the book, because the first four you mentioned, well, you mentioned studying the system and then knowing the way. And kind of embedded in that is emulating our heroes and risking revision, which is about you know adapting, changing. The world's always changing. Your principles might stay the same, but great leaders seem to be able to adjust and flow. I want to just highlight a few texts to give the audience an idea of what you pulled out, what selections from our greatest thinkers and our greatest writers you pulled out. And in the studying the system, a couple that stood out for me were Thucydides, the great Greek historian and general from the Peloponnesian War, who wrote about a speech by Pericles where he reminds the Athenians who they are. And I had never read that speech before. It really stood out to me. It really struck me as, wow, what a great leader. And how often does a business leader, a military leader, any organizational leader need to, at some times when your back's against the wall, remind people what you're all about or what your strength is to get through some kind of challenge, which of course at the time was uh, Athens was facing a major, a major challenge from Sparta and the plague and some other terrible things that were going on in Athens. And here's Pericles standing up and saying, don't forget what we're all about and where our strength is. Yeah, I re I, so this is, as um, you've suggested, is not Pericles' most famous speech. That, that would be the funeral oration uh, on which Lincoln modeled the Gettysburg Address. But I really liked this speech for this anthology because it does happen, as you note, in the middle of a crisis, in the middle of this war, and Pericles needs to remind the Athenians of why they got into this in the first place. And also that the reasons they got into the war or the way they felt when they got into the war may not be the same as what they feel now. And I think that that's important to think about the reasons for going may not be the reasons for staying. The other thing he reminds them of, um, because of course they are a great democracy, they think of themselves as a great democracy, but also he suggested because of their dominance on the sea that they're also an empire now. And they may not realize they're an empire, but they need to think about themselves that way. And he says that, you know, it's dangerous to, to keep it, but it's more dangerous to let it go. And so he's trying to sort of tell them, help them understand that their culture has changed. And I think that can happen 
And it can take people unawares, especially when they're in crisis mode, that the ground truths have changed and they need to sort of be able to figure out their relationship to them. Great example of a leader sort of giving context to the organization or the country they're leading and helping them see the challenges they face and, and kind of appointing a way to navigate through. The other selection, and there's probably eight or 10 selections that you, you put into studying the system, Moby Dick, Herman Melville, you pulled this, this short chapter story. I'm not sure if it was a complete chapter, but you pulled this story out of Moby Dick. I've tried to read Moby Dick <laughs> and I've never made it all the way through. There's times the writing just pops off the page and other times it just seems like I'm slogging through. And you know, I get the big metaphor. The metaphor comes up all the time and um, <laughs> it just never really you know, resonated with me. And then you pulled this section out. I, I don't remember reading. I'm sure I did because I think it's fairly early in the book. It's about the monkey rope. Talk a little bit about that. When I read that, I thought, wow, this is really describing the world we live in today in so many ways. Well, I think your experience with uh, Melville's novel is not unusual. I think many people have that experience. Maybe it requires a sort of a, a certain patience and dedication that we, most people don't have time for. Um, I think it does reward reading, but it's also full of sort of really wild and unexpected insights. Um, and that, that's why I think uh, it deserves time. But this one in particular, one of my favorite sections as well, describes the monkey rope is the rope that ties the uh, sailor who is on the captured whale, you know, in the process of trying to cut it up and prepare it, you know, to extract the the blubber from the whale. And that, it's a very perilous business to be perched on this rotating carcass of a whale at sea. And so the system that is set up on this ship is to tie this sailor to another sailor who is on the deck of the ship. And this is, of course, narrated by Ishmael, to whom the whaler in the, in the water is tied. And so this becomes a great symbol, and it reinforces for Ishmael how intimately he is connected to the various people in the world. And for Melville, this has a particular 19th century urban industrial context in that Ishmael uses this moment to think about all the ways he's tied to people he doesn't even know. And so he talks about being tied to one's banker, being tied to a pharmacist, being tied to all these people with whom we collide. And of course, this is even truer now in a global world. And so the idea of being tied, your fate is tied to strangers, and what might that mean? And so this is the occasion for that particular meditation. Yeah, and I found it powerful. And I, in my work where I do leadership development, it has come up recently in workshops and working with clients, is this idea that decisions made almost anywhere in an organization can have a huge impact because we're all connected. You know, a good example is the United Airlines incident from a couple of years ago where a passenger was you know, physically pulled off a plane. It was filmed by, on someone's phone. And that incident there, obviously, we were all connected to that incident. You know, In the past, something like that could have happened. Maybe it would impact the 30 people on the plane that saw it and maybe their five friends that they told. But now, immediately, it gets out to 100 million people. It creates billions of dollars in market value loss for United. And this is the sort of world that we live in now with uh, Twitter and social media. And I thought, Wow, Melville was capturing that. This kind of gets to the heart of what I found fascinating about your book and where it really opened my eyes to reading some of these great thinkers is that this wisdom is out there and it's relevant. You just have to find it and spend a little time reflecting. Yeah, I think we have a bias toward the contemporary and the current, but if you do dig around uh, in, in older texts, I think you do find some really surprising connections. And that's what makes them stick with us, because I don't think we expect to find, you know, Melville's world was so different, Thucydides' world was so different. But there are certain timeless constants that, uh, that reinforce for us sort of perennial challenges. You know, early on in the anthology, you were mentioning when you talked about the structure that you have, in addition to the chapters, you have these sections called albums, which highlight skills. If the chapters sort of highlight steps along the leader's journey or phases or thresholds that the leader would walk through as, as you go through your journey, you also need some skills along the way. And the first one that comes up was the artist of deep attention is what you called it. And you pulled some selections from writers that had to do with how do you stay focused in a distracted world? 
The one that stood out for me was Seneca. <laughs> He's writing in this very loud, noisy place. And what struck me was you know, that Rome was a very loud place. We think that our world is loud. We think that our world is noisy with all these apps and with everything that's going on, our distractions and our phones, but it's really nothing new under the sun. Seneca was dealing with something very similar and we get to get right into his mind and find out, well, how did he deal with this? Tell me a little bit about this selection and how you found it and why you put it in here. Well, I love this one because, because it does feel very, in a weird way, very contemporary. He chooses this place to live and, and work where it's the noisiest possible place, and he details all the things that are going on. I mean, he's, he's, he, it's near a gym, and so he's got all these people making all these noises and shouts, and there's a pool there, and they're leaping into the pool. And he chooses this place, and he, in order to refine his concentration and block things out, um, he says that he's hardened himself against all these disturbances. He is forcing himself to focus on his mind and not be distracted by outside events. And his point is that this sort of search we have for tranquility, we think that if we lock ourselves in a silent room, we'll gain some kind of concentration. But his point is you need a kind of inner tranquility and you can set up all the conditions of silence you want. But if you are turbulent and restless and distracted inside, you will continue to be that way. And so he's using this to sort of think about the ways in which we might best achieve a self-knowledge and a a self-awareness that helps us to sort of direct ourselves. And then my favorite part of the essay is that at the end, he says, after all this, and after he says it's not outside, but inside peace, he said, but I'm also really tired of living where I am. So it was an experiment and I think I'm going to move. Yeah, he tested himself. He put himself in a noisy environment just to see how he could improve his focus and his attention. And again, what stood out for me was that we sometimes think in this modern world that it's, you know, we're dealing with these challenges for the first time, and we're really not. Another section that really had an impact on me was the George Orwell essay, Shooting the Elephant. I had not read that essay before. I'm a big Orwell fan. For me, it was this incredible metaphor revealed the impact of culture. Sometimes things get started and you really lose control. When there's a mob around or when there's people or momentum going in one direction, that you can be incredibly impacted. You can be compelled to do things that you wouldn't normally do because something started, the snowball kind of got going and you got caught up in it. And it can even cross moral line. It can compel you to do something that you wouldn't morally or ethically normally do. You can see it just hits you emotionally when you read that passage by Orwell. Can you talk a little bit about that? I just found that one fascinating. There's an elephant who's gotten out of control and his attendant is nowhere to be found and he escapes and he's wreaking havoc. And so Orwell is sent out to deal with the elephant and he ends up shooting it. And he realizes even as he's about to do it, that it was the wrong thing to do. But he also knows that he's, he has to do it. And he reveals at the end that he has been deformed by this system, by this colonial system. And of course, this is years later after reflecting on it at the time, he doesn't he knows it's wrong, but he, he feels he has no, no option. And that's where, as you suggest, he crosses this moral line. And I think we see that all the time, that people are unable to extricate themselves soon enough from certain gray areas. And, and that's really where he finds himself. And he realizes that his own freedom of action and of movement has been destroyed by the, this whole system. Well, those are some great examples of how to study the system how to hone your attention. You go into also adapting as you go, a section on risking revision, and then knowing the way. That to me is the first chapter where you say, okay, how are you going to move? How are you going to find yourself? How are you going to follow the truth, be the best possible leader you can be, and lead your organization towards its vision? And I think it was the first section where you started to bring in some Eastern texts, which I wasn't as familiar with. Uh, so you bring in Lao Tzu from the Tao Te Ching and Sun Tzu uh, from the Art of War. And I found the lyrical poetry of the way the Eastern world thinks about finding the way to be, you know, it's, it's very different. It maybe was just where I was in my life, but I found it to be quite refreshing to just look at it from a different perspective. Very sparse as far as the words at times, you know, just very simple phrases and repetition that just sort of reminds you of what the truth is and what the path to enlightenment. 
Yeah, I think so. That one of the things that this section wrestles with is this relationship between contemplation and action. And I think we have in today's world, I think the pendulum swings back and forth, but I think we certainly have a bias for action and also a bias for practical experience. And this chapter was an argument for judgment and thinking rather than leaping to action. And so the inclusion of the poetry sections, because of course poetry takes some time to wrestle with, is an attempt to sort of suggest that, that sometimes it's this think, reading and thinking and contemplating and absorbing. The other thing that um, particularly the Tao Te Ching talks about is this idea of not necessarily seeking to control nature, but dwelling within it. And several of the selections, even from a very different tradition, the, the selection from Tolstoy's War and Peace wrestles with a similar problem, which is this fantasy we have of total control, that we can control everything, um, and that it's only a matter of figuring out how in order to do that. And I think that's really a fantasy. I think it happens in military culture. I think it happens in civilian cultures. So the idea here is to sort of accept that you cannot control everything. Yeah, I found the passage from Tolstoy to be also very compelling, very revealing. It motivated me to read War and Peace. I haven't read it yet, but I had never picked up Tolstoy before that section. And incredible writing, incredible insight into humans and how we think and how we interact. You also have a section from uh, The Art of War. Immediately after that section, you put in another album. It's called Artists of Delay. And I thought it was just a brilliant move because I was reading about finding the way reading these great thinkers from history, from antiquity, from the Middle Ages. They thought about this deeply. And then here you, you throw us a curveball. And <laughs> I thought it was great because then you said, well, sometimes the way is actually to delay. The passage that really stood out for me in The Artist of Delay was the wonderful story from Plutarch about Fabius Maximus, which I don't think I'd read that one before either. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that because I, I thought that was a great lesson. Talk a little bit about Fabius Maximus. Fabius Maximus is one of a series of generals who's charged defeating Hannibal, the great Carthaginian general who threatens Rome. Nobody seems to be able to figure Hannibal out. Hannibal is, he's a great commander. He's very far, of course, from his home base, um, and he's creating havoc. And so a lot of Romans think that the best way to do this would be to be aggressive and to, to go after Hannibal and force him into the field and fight with him. And that seems to be the Roman way of doing things. And Fabius Maximus decides, no, he's going to take advantage of his comparative strength of supply closer as he is to his base and the fact that Hannibal is in enemy territory. So he instead decides to make it a, a war of waiting, to wait Hannibal out and deplete his strength in that way. And all the other Romans don't understand this as a good way of doing business. And they say, don't they counsel? This is, you know, this is terrible. What are you doing? You're allowing Hannibal to sort of lord it over you. And this is really kind of embarrassing. And Fabius Maximus withstands a great deal of pressure from those in his army who think that this is just not a, an appropriate way to make war. And he waits Hannibal out. And it's a very unpopular course of action, but ultimately a successful one. As I recall, there was, a, there was another younger general who sort of got tired of waiting and said, give me some troops. I'm going to go out and solve this problem, right? You know, I'm not going to be weak like you. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to take on Hannibal. I'm going to take him straight on and solve this problem right away and restore our Roman honor. It doesn't go well for that younger general. Everyone then looks back at Fabius and says, well, maybe Fabius kind of knew what he was doing. We should listen to Fabius and listen to the wisdom of <laughs> the older general who's been around and knew to use the strengths that Rome had and to use Hannibal's weaknesses against him. And it ended up being a great strategy, but it, it wasn't easy. He took a lot of heat. It's a great reminder for leaders that if you've got a strategy and you believe in it, that it's not always going to be popular and you're going to have to stick through. And sometimes the best strategy is not necessarily to go out swinging and fighting. Right. And you know, there's a point where Plutarch says the only one who appreciated Fabius's strategy was Hannibal. <laughs> Right? And yeah. that all the Romans thought it was terrible. But I think it's easy to confuse a strategy of delay or waiting or patience or restraint with indecision. Those aren't the same things, but they sometimes look alike. Yes. 
you know, and that's where wisdom really comes into play. And that's where going back and reading these texts and making that a part of your leadership development practice is an important piece. To know the difference between indecision and delay, to have the conviction that you're on the right path, that you're not just being indecisive, but this is the strategic way. The strategic way is to wait it out, uh, to let your competitor kind of play out their strategy and deplete their resources. And then you're going to go do whatever you're going to do. So at this point, you move on to cultivating trust and negotiating world and self. Talk a little bit about those sections. And if there's a, a section that you want to, to highlight, I'd be happy to talk about that as well. The next several sections think about once a leader has a, has a principle and a philosophy and is also willing to change and adapt and to risk revision, sort of thinking about what kinds of culture to foster. And I think cultivating trust is a particularly important one. Trust uh, is something that everybody is talking about these days. Um, I think people have different ideas about it, or they think there's some shortcut to cultivating it, but it sometimes takes a great deal of time. Fabius is, is a great example of that. But I think it, it's extremely important. Part of the, I think, one of the keys to cultivating trust is a willingness to, to sort of underwrite failure and to let people who work with and for you find their own way. And that requires sometimes an inordinate amount of patience and time. But I don't think there's any shortcut to empowering people who are part of your culture, whatever industry that may be. Well, one of the sections that for me in Cultivating Trust was the, the Martin Dempsey essay on mission command, which comes from your world at, at West Point in the U.S. military. What I got out of that essay was Dempsey was arguing that the effective military leader of the future is going to be much more about communicating the vision. This is where we need to go. This is the strategy. I'm going to let my subordinates, my colonels, my officers figure out how to do that on the ground. And we're not going to dictate command and control, I guess, is the way I think about the alternative form of leadership that maybe we sometimes think about when we think about the U.S. military. I think that's changed. Uh, You have better insight into that than I do, obviously. But he was making an argument for we've got to trust that the people that work for us, the people that are in our organization are going to know the best way to implement and execute on a strategy. Right. And I, I think so. This is a it's sort of an older tradition that actually dates from from the the Prussian army uh, that that fought with Napoleon, and the idea sort of revived and, and popularized by Martin Dempsey when he was the chief of staff of the army and then the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was this idea of mission command, which requires a faith not only in the people with whom you work but also in the system that trained them. So that the idea of mission command is that the commander's intent, as you've noted, needs to be communicated. But then the best way to go about achieving it is left to one's subordinates. And that is a real hands-off style of leadership. It's one that I think, at least in the last 18 years, has been necessitated in many ways by the kinds of wars we've been fighting. But I think it has an applicability far beyond uh, the military. But I think a lot of senior leaders in uniform and out, you can easily understand might be uncomfortable with this in the idea that you're, you're ceding a certain amount of control um, and that it has to be underwritten by mutual trust and confidence. After the section on cultivating trust, again, you throw us a little curveball, which again, I, found, I just love the way that you juxtapose some of these essays. You, you offer a selection of essays that are about con artists opposite of building trust. And, you know, some of them are, you know, you got to be are sort of warnings that, hey, there's some people out there that are nefarious, or they're going to be trying to con you, you know, trick you, and you've got to be careful. You've got to be aware that there's these people are out there. But you also threw a few in that section that I would say argue for sometimes the way forward is telling 100% of the truth may not be the best way to get what you need at all times. You know, and this kind of goes back to an ancient argument about is, is there a good lie or is there a bad lie? But it felt like there also were 
the section I'm thinking of is, um, or the essay I was thinking of was the Mervyn Leroy essay, who was an actor or a, an extra on a set of a movie by Cecil B. DeMille early in the 20th century. And he talks about being a part of this Hollywood set. This was on the set of Moses, as I recall. And DeMille was the director, and he wanted to get the most out of his actors. He wanted to get the most out of the extras that were there. And at one point, he tells a little white lie to his set. As you probably recall, he says something like, you know, someone on the set has died. It's been tragic. And everyone, I just want a moment of silence. And everyone takes on this solemn demeanor, and he gets the shot that he needs for his movie and it was a little deception, but he ended up getting what he wanted. And in the end, it was, it was the con artist as, as artist, I guess. Um, but you talk a little bit about that section. And if you want to mention anything about the essay about DeMille, I'd be interested in that too. Well, this section is one of my favorites um, in that it is sort of counterintuitive. Why is this here? But it, it highlights a couple of things for me. The first is that I think leadership is a kind of performance in part. And I don't think that this is necessarily a bad thing. We all perform a variety of roles in public. And I think we just have to accept that. I think a performance can be heartfelt. It can be honest. And I think the kind of deception that leaders often perform is that they don't share necessarily their own worries or anxieties with those around them. So there is a sort of stoicism, I think, that some leaders feel it is important to display in order to give some kind of strength and confidence to those who work with them. Then, of course, there is the other kind of performance, um, the kind of con game that I think Cecil B. DeMille illustrates there in that he makes up this story about, about the cast member in order to get everybody, he asks for a moment of silence, and everybody is so moved by this that, he, that as you suggest, he gets exactly the take that he wants. So, I mean, there, you know, it's, it's on a movie set, and, and it's all about a kind of performance But I think it illustrates the sort of fine line between those kinds of performances that seem to be consistent with one's principles and other kinds of performances, which are outright deception and which, you know, I don't think I would recommend to any leader uh, in terms of being consonant with, with a kind of healthy principles and a healthy culture. But I also think people, the other reason I included it was that I think people need to be on guard against those kinds of performers. Um, because let's face it, con artists are out there and we need to be armed against them. Absolutely. And again, it's, it's wisdom that's going to help you realize and navigate through those challenging pathway there between cultivating trust and being a performer at times. I think Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger are great examples of leaders who have a certain performance. There's a certain aspect of their character that they live up to when they're talking to the press and when they're in front of their shareholders in Omaha. And there's, you did put an essay in about Buffett towards the end. But before we get there, moving on from cultivating trust, there's a section on negotiating the world and self. This was my first introduction to Montaigne. You put an essay in here. It's called Of Cannibals. Maybe you could talk a little bit about Of Cannibals, because that, that essay resonated with me. And then I decided to read the whole book of essays. <laughs> and I did get through that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think he is absolutely an original. Um, he has a kind of modernity that we wouldn't necessarily associate with this uh, 16th century Frenchman. Uh, th- these essays are really experimentation. And that's what I think keeps them so fresh and engaging to 21st century readers. And he ranges wildly in his topics uh, from cannibals to cowardice. And in this case, in in Of the Cannibals, he's talking about this idea that what is a a barbarian, right? And he he thinks that, of course, Europeans think everybody else is a a barbarian, just as the Greeks thought everyone who didn't speak Greek. That was, you know, of course, the original meaning of of barbarian. And so he, he talks about savagery. He talks about exploration to the new world and the Europeans' assumption that they are entering a savage culture. And he really uses this clash between old and new world to reveal the savageries of European culture and the primitive nature of the cruelty that he sees exerted every day. He has lived through 
uh, the religious wars of France, which were absolutely brutal. So he uses this occasion of a meeting between New World and Old to reflect on his own culture and to see his own culture anew. And I think that ability to look, to stand outside one's own culture and see it afresh is crucial for anyone. Absolutely. There's a passage in in that essay where he's describing this native tribe. Few of the tribal members actually came over to France and met the king of France. And Montaigne had a chance to be at the court, talk to these tribal leaders from the area near Brazil. They were sort of stunned by the poverty they saw in Europe, the disparity in wealth, the extreme wealth of the court, and then walking in the streets of Paris and seeing beggars and the poverty. And they said, we view our brothers as one half of ourselves, and we would never stand for treating each other like this because we are all connected. I guess that's an example of when you go back and read some of these great writers and thinkers, there will be passages, maybe it'll be a little different for you as a reader than it was for me or for anyone that picks this up, but you will find passages that will stick with you and guide you at times when you absolutely need them. And that was one passage that stuck with me and actually motivated me to read the rest of Montaigne. So you then move on to taking responsibility and learning from failure. Talk a little bit about those two sections. Sure. So the, um, the idea of uh, taking responsibility can mean sort of very local question, uh, taking responsibility for oneself but also thinking about all those things we are responsible in a larger sense. And, and that's why I include as the last selection in this chapter, something from Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, in which Carson challenges her readers by insisting that responsibility for the environment belongs not just to leaders, but to everyone. But I think this idea that we are responsible to subsequent generations is something that leaders have interpreted in a variety of ways. And that can be just sort of thinking about their own legacies in a given organization, or, and this requires a great deal of imagination, thinking about future generations. So then you move on to a selection of essays around learning from failure. I thought this was also brilliant because any leader who goes out into the world and tries to change things, tries to implement their vision, it never goes perfectly. There's always going to be obstacles. There's going to be setbacks. There's going to be events that can be interpreted as failure. And often they are just another step in the journey of the leader as far as learning, learning about the world, learning about themselves, and another step towards the eventual goal. It was just, that's the way that they got there. What stood out for me in, in this section, you've got a number of great, you've got Herodotus, which is a wonderful story. You've got Plutarch on Alexander. But what stood out to me was Ulysses S. Grant's essay from his autobiography, A Valuable Lesson, when he reflected back on his campaign in the Civil War. Grant's writing is amazing. You motivated me to go back and read Grant's autobiography. I haven't done that yet either, but wow, it did make me want to go back and read him. Well, Grant has been my companion for a long time now. In fact, I just edited uh, an edition of the memoirs. They've been very important to me. And I like to teach them as well. I just taught them in a, a Civil War literature class. And they're very unusual for the period and the way he writes about war. And also about the way that he explores some of his own shortcomings and failure. When I was compiling this, this anthology, there were moments when I thought the entire thing could be about, it could be an anthology about just learning from failure. Because there are so many more examples of it than there are success, I think, in the annals of world history. Grant's in particular, though, thinking about it, it's a moment early in his career, the first time in command. He had been in combat before in the Mexican War, but he hadn't really been in command of anyone. And this is the first time that he is in command. And he faces a moment not unlike that of Fabius Maximus, where the culture in which he works sort of discourages uh, taking stock of things and waiting and, and sending out actually a reconnaissance, in this case, to find out where his adversary is. But he says that he lacks the moral courage to call a halt. And so he goes after this uh, Confederate commander, and the Confederate commander has just decamped, so nothing really happens there. But he s says, takes from that that he learns a valuable lesson, that the enemy is just as afraid of him as he is of the enemy. Um, and that's one that stands him in, in good stead. But he doesn't sort of celebrate this uh, rashness that he, that he demonstrated. Instead, he reveals it to be a, a kind of failure of nerve. He reveals to his readers the emotional state, the fear that he felt as he was leading 
this group and and the the self doubt that plagued him at times and how it could almost cripple you if you let the fear of engaging with the enemy really get to you you could be crippled and then he flips it around and says and by the way what i take from this is the enemy is feeling the same thing and if i can emotionally control my fear and have my composure and my temperament as i lead then i'm going to have that advantage he was very fortunate in discovering that he had great physical courage under fire and his calm was uh, was remarkable and i think inspired calm in others as well the next section is about resisting the system. So talk a little bit about that. Sort of envision this system, this section, uh, resisting the system as one where people come to a point where their principles can no longer accord with the system. And so they are forced to resist it in some way in order to stay true to those principles. Yes. And in this section, you have a number of great writers and thinkers who have resisted the system, including... Gandhi, Mandela, and Martin Luther King Jr. But the one that really impacted me was the story about Frederick Douglass in his autobiography. And it reveals a young man who's coming up in this oppressive system of slavery, yet he realizes that he has the power within himself to break free from his bondage and become a free man, a free human being. And the thing I like about this section, which comes from his narrative from 1845, his first autobiography, is that he he figures this out when he learns to read. He's taught to read, and initially anyway, by his mistress, as he calls her, until the master says, this is a terrible idea. Once you teach Frederick to read, he will realize, he will be discontent. He will sort of figure out the system. And, And Douglas admits that he didn't really understand his own enslavement until he learned how to read and thus thought of himself as a human being for the first time. And it's a very powerful realization. And it does make him discontent. And it makes him realize ultimately, although there are many uh, setbacks along the way, that he must escape this bondage. Then you move on to the subject of judgment and decision making, which is so important. And you choose for this section a number of letters from Abraham Lincoln. The one that really stood out to me was the letter that President Lincoln wrote to General Grant during the Civil War, where he admits to Grant, you were right, I was wrong. And it's so refreshing to hear a leader say that. I I love that letter as well. And I I think it it reveals a lot about Lincoln's leadership style. He, He did disagree. It was about the operations around Vicksburg. And Lincoln really wasn't sure what Grant was up to, um, as Grant was trying to figure out the best way to take the fort. And uh, Lincoln just said, you know, I I figured you knew your business better than I did, so I kept my reservations to myself for the most part. Um, But then what I love about this was that there's no compulsion for him to admit this. It's it's purely voluntary, right? There's no, I mean, Grant would never know, um, and no one else would know, but he has enough confidence as a leader, to admit that he's wrong. And I think it really helped to cement what turned out to be a phenomenal working relationship between Lincoln and Grant that sustained them for the rest of the war. Your final section, disciplining desire and letting go. And the disciplined desire for me was about, you know, as a leader, as you achieve success, as you cultivate perhaps ambition, perhaps this will to to go out and conquer in some way, you've got to be careful because when you stoke those flames, they can get out of control and you have these cautionary tales. The big one in that section was you just took a whole play from Shakespeare and dropped it into your anthology. You put Macbeth right there, bam. When you read Shakespeare, you realize that here's someone who understood people, who understood culture, understood how people were motivated wrote beautifully about how the world really works. Most of these, his great plays are tragedies, so they're examples of what not to do. Be careful, they're warnings. You know, you can, as high as you are in life or as close as you are to getting the throne, in this case with Macbeth, you know, be careful what you do and what you wish for because it can lead down a very, very dark road. 
So, yeah, and, and I, I wanted to put a whole play in there because it, it demands a kind of attention that I'm trying to advocate for, a kind of deep attention rather than, than putting it in excerpt, although I do have excerpts from other Shakespeare plays along the way. I also put it in, I think uh, it's not the play that most leadership courses would put in. I think King Lear tends to be a go-to Shakespeare text for leadership discussions. So I wanted to throw something different in there. And the reason is that I think Macbeth, it teaches us that ambition is a morally neutral attribute. I think sometimes we tend to condemn it, um, and then sometimes we tend to celebrate it. But it, it's it's neither good nor bad. It's it's what you make of it, and it's it's the discipline you have in exerting it. And I think that Macbeth is such an interesting leader because he has he has a lot of the attributes of a really phenomenal leader. And he knows his work. He is respected by all. He feels deeply uh, kinship bonds and community. And I think as a result of that, that's what makes it tragic, that he's willing to betray all of these things. And he never, it's never a question of not knowing all that he sacrifices. He's not a sort of typical villain in that way. He absolutely knows the difference between right and wrong, between pursuing a, a virtuous path and a criminal one. And he chooses the latter and realizes, I think, fairly early on that he has, he's just sort of lost the ability to turn back. Yeah. Um, and so that's what makes it so powerful for me. Yeah. Once, once events start rolling, they get out of control and it's, uh, well, a lot of blood shows up in that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the, the final section, you've had this little coda, which I thought was great called letting go. If you think about your legacy as a leader, you know, we started at the very beginning around studying the system and finding our heroes and finding the way and learning from failure and kind of going on this leadership journey. And then what did the great writers say about when it's time to let go? So I was really interested at this point, you know, after what I hope was taking people on a journey, beginning with studying the system, beginning with learning about those organizations of which we're a part and when which we might hope to lead one day. And then thinking about this really hard thing, which is this this overwhelming question of, of legacy. And I think people sometimes get so consumed with it that they lose sight of what is actually in the best interest of the organization. So that it becomes about them, it becomes their story, rather than the organization's story. And so how, I mean, the most elegant uh most elegant way to, to let go, I was sort of thinking about. And so I have some poems here about people who, who don't let go very easily. Uh, Queen Elizabeth returns in this, just thinking about what it means to be uh, toward the end of one's career or of a chapter in one's career. And that ultimate, that final responsibility of leaving an organization in an even stronger position than one found it. Yeah, this. The poem on Queen Elizabeth I, was the, the one that really stood out for me in that section. Inevitably, she declined. I'll let the readers in the audience enjoy that one. To wrap things up, talk a little about if there's leaders out there that want to explore some of these texts, that want to get more out of the great thinkers and writers of our past and really capture that wisdom in some way. Do you have any advice? You know, It can be really overwhelming. It can be sometimes challenging to work through these texts. One thing that really helped me in this anthology was I never got bogged down in any one writer for too long. And if one of the selections that you put into the um, anthology didn't speak to me, I was not afraid to just go to the next section. And I did. And sometimes I would go back and, oh, I skipped this one five times. Maybe I should um, eventually read it. You know. And I think I've read the whole thing now. But if, if, if I did, it was because I jumped around three or four times and read several essays three or four times before I went and read uh, a writer that didn't resonate with me right away. But what, what, any advice for, for leaders that, you know, how can we use these great thinkers? Well, I think your, your model here is a great one. I, I'm delighted to hear that you, you know, would reread some and then neglect others. And, and that's fine. Not every, not every piece in an anthology is going to speak to every reader. Um, that's the, I think the strength of, of an anthology. And I, I think to, uh, to be able to read around in different sections is great. And then as you've suggested, some, some writers you went and read more, right, with Montaigne and, and, and things like that. I think the other, the other challenge I had as a teacher in making this anthology is that I love to luxuriate in long works. 
and I sometimes resist reading in excerpt, but I also realize that's a sort of fundamental fact and that's sometimes our first introduction to a given work. So I tried to be as responsible as I could with the excerpts. And if they tantalize and if you decide that you want to read more, then I've offered some you know, guidance along the way in terms of context for those individual excerpts that a reader might then pursue. But I, I think that given the time constraints many people face, that sometimes reading an excerpt is the, is the way in. And I also think and maybe the example that you gave of Seneca is the best one. What does this old Roman have to tell us? And I think that's sometimes our tendency to think about, well, they couldn't possibly know these people who lived so long ago. We have a kind of, we're very presentist today. And I think we have a sort of snobbery about the unenlightened people of the past, right? And, and we view our own world and our own challenges as unprecedented. And I think that's to our detriment. And that, so part of my goal with this anthology was to suggest that, in fact, our challenges may look different from those of the past, but they, they have some fundamental continuities. And there is actually a lot that we might learn from thinking about the ways in which people who did live in totally different times faced those particular challenges. One of the words that my students use a lot as one of their criteria for whether they like something or not is, is that it's relatable. And I think that we have sort of surrendered to that idea so things to which we can relate in some way are good. Things that we cannot relate to are bad. And I don't think we will ever grow unless we plunge into worlds that we can't initially relate to. And many of these things will seem very strange and weird to us. And I think you just have to have some patience and wait around and find those correspondences where we can. Well, you certainly opened my eyes to new worlds, different worlds, different perspectives in this anthology. And I want to personally just thank you for putting it together. I want to encourage my listeners to, to pick it up, or if not this anthology, pick up some of these great thinkers from the past, try them out, build them into your practice of reflection and learning, because there's so much wisdom that we can learn from the past. Thank you so much for being on the Good Life Podcast. Thanks, John. It was a great pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.